Welcome to the Culture Builders podcast channel, looking at how individual and team performance builds strong cultures. Hosted by Jane Sparrow and Chris Preston. You are listening to a deep dive episode. I'm joined on this episode of the Culture Builders podcast by John Chusa, and I recently had the real pleasure of reviewing his book, On Board. And to say it's a page turner isn't doing it justice. It's not a business book. It's not an autobiography. It's something in between that's delightful, hugely inspiring, but also fascinating in a way that many business books have not caught my imagination for quite some time. John has spent a great deal of his life working on and with boards of a range of interesting national and international institutions, and his book brings this story to life. I was fascinated by the interplay that John talked about between board and the wider organisation, and from a cultural perspective, what did it mean in terms of how the board interacts, how the board puts weight on the culture, and how it helps build it up. So, John, great to have you here. Very nice to be here, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Now, John, your current title is co-chairman of the uh, National or the European Union Youth Orchestra. But you've done a lot more and are doing a lot more than that. So just bring to life your your heritage and history. Well, um, briefly, I have been a journalist uh, for many years, a BBC radio and television journalist. I, I started Newsnight. Uh, with with Peter Snow many years ago. Then I went off into management and ran the BBC World Service. After the BBC World Service, I went to the Barbican Centre. Then I became chairman of the University of the Arts, chairman of the Wigmore Hall. And so I have seen, I think, quite a lot of governance from both sides, from the side of the board and from the side of the executives. And what the book does is tell a series of stories about how often big organizations, such as the British Museum, such as English National Opera, had their governance crises and what they did to overcome those crises and the price that was paid psychologically and personally by many people who were in those crises. So um, yes, it's a book about management and governance. I think it's also a book about culture and and society. But uh, above all, it's a series of stories from which I hope lessons can be taken. Absolutely. And lessons are all the way through the book. So I'm going to give it a huge plug and say, if you haven't got a copy, then I'd get one as soon as you can, because it is a rich read. But thinking about your time on board and the, the big opening question or the thing to discuss for around this for us is how do you see boards particularly having a weight on an organization's culture or and what should it be but also what is it sometimes in terms of detrimental or positive uh, let me start with one positive one and then i'll give you a detrimental one the positive one was on the national portrait gallery and when I joined, which was, you know, a, a while back, but the National Portrait Gallery was a great academic institution. The board was made up of academics, art historians, and experts in portrait history. And the management reflected that, and it was an organization that was completely stuck. 
that was that was all it did. The board slowly changed because boards were changing in the 1990s and people like me, journalists and businessmen and others came on the board and we said, you know, there is more to this organization than you are getting out of it. You've got to understand, of course, it's about portraiture, but it, it is about lots of other things as well. And the change of tone on the board, I think in many respects allowed and perhaps from time to time obliged the executives to do things differently and to transform the National Portrait Gallery into a body of and for innovation. It never lost what it was about, which was about the history of portraiture, but it then became about all sorts of other things as well. And that would not have happened if the board had not itself been changed first. The bad uh, case of a relationship between the board and management was that the BBC, under a chairman called uh, Marmaduke Hussey, Dukey Hussey, and Dukey thought that um, the board should be more managerial. Well, we were broadcasters. You know, we, we made programs. And it was a, uh, an organization uh, which was dedicated to making programs and uh, being broadcasters and getting audiences to listen to those programs. Dukey thought we should be managerial, and there was a constant tug of war between the Board of Governors, who basically lined up behind uh, Dukey Hussey, the chairman, and the Board of Management. And there was a tremendous battle between the chairman and the director general, that is the chief executive, who the chairman, for good measure, looked down on and patronized. So you had a clash of cultures between the Board of Governors and the Board of Management, and an even worse clash of cultures between the chairman and the chief executive, the director general. And that argument um, was never resolved. In other words, it wasn't one side, one over the other. And as a result of that, the BBC was in a state of tension from which in some respects it has never got out of. That is the price that you pay. One other case, if I may. Yes, please do. University of the Arts London, which was six art colleges, which had been their own uh, art colleges with their own identity for many decades. And they were brought together in the University of the Arts London. So the colleges said, well, you know, that's all right. Well, there is this thing called University of the Arts London, but we are still Central St. Martins, Chelsea College, Wimbledon. They really did very little towards the collective identity of the university. And uh, I and the Court of Governors said, you are missing out opportunities. You cannot just treat the centre as some sort of clearinghouse. There is an identity for the University of the Arts London, which involves all sorts of administrative things, which are quite important, but also how do you teach? Are you saying there are six different ways of teaching? How do you recruit? How do you, uh, how do you value? Uh, output all sorts of things which are absolutely central to the business of the arts. And if it had not been for a court of governors which insisted on this and said we want a unified body or a unifying body which doesn't homogenize but which actually brings out the best potential of the six colleges, University of the Arts London would not have got to where it is today. Um, 
So the there, the culture of the board of the Court of Governors was absolutely crucial in informing how the culture of the university itself behaved and became. There's two questions that I'd, I'd like to follow up that with. So first of all, just thinking about your three examples, so really you've got two of success, one of a very dramatic, long-lasting failure. But all three examples, you, you're talking about a board that is looking to make a significant change in the organisation that it's governing. So, but what were the just highlight the factors that you saw and, and you used to make that shift successful? Because I'd argue that actually, in some ways, moving an, a, a, the, an organisation like the National Portrait Gallery towards a much more innovative stance and a very more, more kind of fizzy approach could in some ways be more difficult than getting more managerial rigour into the BBC. But clearly, you did it in a certain way. What would you say are the factors that are critical? Um, I suspect that they were psychological. In the case of the BBC, the executives, the board of management of which I was part, um, we, we were not stupid. We didn't run our organisations badly. We didn't throw money away. We were as, let's say, efficient and managerial as we should be and needed to be in a way that was consistent with being broadcasters who made programs. What the Board of Governors appear to want was something far more managerial, so to say, I've used that word in inverted commas as it was used, which um, they somehow convinced themselves would actually make a better broadcasting organization. And, and it didn't. So there was a fundamental clash. I think in the case of the National Portrait Gallery, what the indication that a new direction was possible, and that direction came from the new trustees, I think that actually enabled and freed up the uh, artistic leadership of the National Portrait Gallery, who knew that they were not being asked to do something that was inconsistent with their values or the principal role of being the, the repository of portraiture. And that what they were invite, being invited to do was to do things which would enhance the role right. of providing portraiture. So when you have that, when there's an enabling role, um, then you can get things done. Where there is just a clash of cultures, as there was in BBC, the result is very bad. And what I'm hearing there again is you talking about boards unlocking potential in organisations. And I think for many people that would be a surprise to hear. I don't get the sense that many, many organisations or people within organisations understand that boards are there to do that. Is that fair to say? I think that may well be that may well be right. I'll give you uh, another example, if, if I may, and that was at the Wigmore Hall, where I was first a trustee and then then the chair. And um, the Wigmore Hall had been around as a concert hall for. 80 or 90 years, it came to governance and to, to being an independent organization, charitable organization with separate uh, trustees, very late in its career. And it needed the trustees, and even the trustees learned this themselves quite late, to say, look, look at this organization, look at what it can be, look at its potential. And um, 
again, there, the, the trustees wanted the organization to grow. And then by appointing people to the chief executive ship, who also wanted it to grow, the culture of the two sides, governance, governors and management could develop together. So I think permission, so to say, uh, is very, very important in this, in this role. It's when the danger comes, is if the governors say, this is what you ought to be. Right. Well, sometimes yes, sometimes no, but that is much more dangerous. But permission saying you can do more, you can do better, and we will back you, I think is a terrific engine of movement. What you're describing there is a parent-child or an adult-adult relationship that when the organisation is the naughty child, it will act out and it will, will push back against authority rather than an offer of support. John, you talk a lot about, you, you, you use that phrase, the, the culture of the board. Just open that up a little bit in terms of what you see as the cornerstones of a good board culture in terms of the you know, some of the attitudes and principles and approaches. What, what makes a board fly over others that are, are turgid or stuck? Um, I think there has to be a sense of um, possibility. Also, do you know, people need to like the organisation. <laughs> That's a good start, isn't it? They really, really do. Um, and if you don't like an organisation and somebody says, come and, sit, come and sit on the board, please don't say yes. Um, also, it isn't a question of coming on a board and saying, I think that what managers do is wrong and we will now put it right. That is far, far too crude. And also, you know, because the element of interplay between what the executives are doing and what they might do and how they might do it and what the uh, governors, the trustees uh, might do, there is a constant interplay. So long as that takes place, you can make a lot of difference. It's when either one becomes defensive um, uh, or the other becomes dictatorial, then, then you run into difficulties. And you know, I can think of at least two big cases where chief executives coming into a major job, one at English National Opera, one at the University of the Arts London, and the incoming chief executive was specifically told by his predecessor at English National Opera, said, don't tell the board anything. <laughs> and when at University of the Arts London, we appointed a really brilliant lawyer called Nigel Carrington, who then has been an absolutely superb vice chancellor. And when he got his job and he was talking around with other vice chancellors, they said, look, here, Nigel, here's, here's a word of advice to you. Say, don't tell your governors anything. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Um, it sounds like so, a Shakespearean play. It's brilliant. Yes, yeah, and that is why uh, organisations come come unstuck when you have that that sort of interplay. Um, so the board, the board must be modest in relation to the organisation and the executives, but that doesn't mean to say that it doesn't vigilant uh or that it doesn't give advice uh in the end after all the definition of the relationship between the 
chair and the chief executive is we are the closest of partners until I, the chair, have to sack you. Right. Yes. Both, both things are true, partnership and, and, and separation. Um, and if you can manage that, then things work out very, very well. And they work when there's absolute openness on both sides. And so ditto with boards. Boards don't know how to run the organization, do they? They need executives uh, to do that. Therefore, let the executive do it, but monitor and supervise, because that's also a responsibility. So modesty on the part of the board, diligence on the part of the board, supervision on the part of the board, and when necessary, advice and correction. So is it fair to say that the two cultures, so the the board culture and the exec and the wider organisational culture, they are and should be different, but with points of crossover. Yes, I think that that's absolutely right, because in the end, the functions are are different. Um, you just have to do different things, and you take a different uh, a different view um, of how an organisation might run. But unless they're united in shared beliefs, a shared uh, understanding of the direction that an organization is going in. After all, the executives define the strategy and the board then checks, supervises, and sometimes modifies the strategy. The board can't devise the strategy. Um, when I was managing director at the Barbican Center, the strategy was created by myself and the arts director. The board wouldn't have wanted to devise the strategy and they wouldn't have known how to. But what they could see was having set a certain strategy, whether we were following that or not. Now, if they'd absolutely loathed it, of course, they could have changed the strategy and they would have had to change the change the managing director. Uh, so from that point of view, it is, it, 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 it's very clear. They're different functions, but they have to be united. Doesn't mean to say that one just rolls over. It's an interesting point, again, because you'd assume naively that they should be just where there's no gap between where the culture of the organization ends and the board starts but i don't think that's what you're saying and and i can understand why in terms of you've got different jobs and you need a different skill set and one of the things i I just pick up on that you said right at the start when you were describing the the work that you've done and the, the content of the book you talked about taking them through crises but i never read it as such because i think one of the skills you've clearly got is to keep a calm head and not panic, which I'm guessing is a keyboard attribute. So the way you describe what the, the organisations went through, for me, felt more like evolution, sometimes painful. But is that something that, as a board, you have to do? Is that be that, that level-headed presence when things start to go wrong? I can assure you it didn't feel like just a level-headed presence when we were going through crises at English National Opera and where we very sadly parted company with three chief executives in about six or seven years. And each parting was very, very painful and traumatic. And they were always overlaid by big financial crises yeah. uh, and arguments with the Arts Council and, and, and the government. Um, 
they they were not easy times they they were dramatic times um and i think sleep was lost over them as as well and personal pain and at the british museum to move again from an organization which was very traditional you know it had been there for nearly 250 years this is the british museum yeah. and people are suddenly starting to say you really need to change and you do need to run yourselves better than you do that was a huge change and it, there was a transition again which involved some significant changes of senior personnel that was a transition which must have taken six to seven years oh. and it had to be done bit by bit and it wasn't clear at the start of that transition how it was going to end up all that i think was clear that a transition had to start the position that we were in was not tenable and so taking that first step and saying right we've now got to do something and that wasn't because we knew where we were going to end up we just knew that we couldn't stay where we were i in the book i remember you talk about the is it the board of the british museum where when you first joined one of the things that they spent a long time on was looking at new artifacts and deciding and also that each board member was aligned with a department and I was smiling to myself thinking that's a very clever organization that's learned how to keep its board busy but keep them away from the stuff that you don't want them to and you did a lot of work there to turn that around didn't you yes and I think that situation that you you described was not altogether a bad one because what it said was this is an organization about scholarship and the scholars the keepers of the different departments are people who should be in close touch with the trustees a lot of whom were also scholars and academics as well that was not a bad thing at all but it meant that for example the finances just weren't properly run and hard decisions about getting the finances in order and just transforming the British Museum from a traditional academic body to one which was a large public international body, big changes had to be had to be made. Um, so there, there, there was a large, uh, a large movement. Um, and there, there, there had to be there had to be changes of behavior, and there had to be changes of people without ever forgetting that the British Museum was about scholarship. And as Neil McGregor, the director, coined this wonderful phrase, that what is the British Museum? It is a museum of the world for the world. Now, when he said that, everybody, every trustee sort of looked up and said, that's it, that's it. And you could drive forward on that, that vision. The shared vision piece seems so important in terms of both entities having that crystal clear this is where we're going and yes. if one's pointing the other direction then it sounds like it's going to be an absolute nightmare yeah absolutely um, as i say at the, at the barbican center um if for example the barbican center committee had said to graham sheffield the artistic director and me no 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 we we don't want all this hearty fairy stuff uh we want musicals popular shows, lots of money, uh, lots of popular concerts in the, in, the, in the concert hall, and we're going to reduce your funding until you earn more, et cetera, et cetera. Um, well, they could have said that, and in a sense, they would have been perfectly entitled to. 
they would have lost their management, but then they would have, have found a, 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 a new one. What they did was to accept that the vision which Graham Sheffield and I put forward was one from which they and the City of London would benefit in reputational terms. So that was that that was good. I mean, you know, as it were the values between us and the executive team at the Barbican and the City of London Corporation Committee couldn't have been greater, but they weren't there trying to second guess what we did. They were trying to say, are you doing it properly? So they saw what their role and function was. And they rather liked the fact that the things we did won general approval. Do you struggle as a board to manage the ambition of the, the trustees and the, the board when they come from highly commercial, highly successful backgrounds? Because I noticed that a lot of the trustees that you talk about have got incredibly glittering careers and they've, they're clearly very successful. And you do wonder how much of that do they try and apply and at what point does it become detrimental? Um, what is always dangerous is if a trustee board member comes on and uh, thinks either directly or indirectly that a culture board, and these are mainly cultural boards that we're talking about, is like is is should be more businesslike, or should sorry should be a business. And the answer to that is, of course, we must be businesslike because you can't waste money and you shouldn't waste money. But you never turn us into a business. I remember once I was appearing before the Finance Committee of the City of London Corporation. And the chairman of the Finance Committee, a very formidable figure, said, now tell me, John, when you have a full house in the Barbican Concert Hall, uh, how much profit do you make? And I said, we don't make a profit. He said, no, no, you, you haven't understood. When you have a full house, how much profit do you make from that? I said, we don't make a profit. So he looked a bit cross. And I said, the cost of an orchestra, conductor, service, and all that are very much more than anything you can ever earn from selling 2,000 seats. I said, every concert loses money from that point of view. So the question, do you make a profit or do you lose money, is, is from that point of view, irrelevant. You always lose money. That is the nature of it. The question is, how do you run the overall uh, the overall organisation? Um, and I tell you, the, all the good businessmen and the majority of people I sat on boards with were high level, but they knew that when they were sitting on a board of a not-for-profit organisation, as the Americans call it, but that's the point. It doesn't make a profit. So you can make sure that it knows how to use money and it doesn't chuck it around, but you don't have false expectations of it. And the other great thing was that um, so many of the business people that I sat on boards with all said, uh, a culture board, an arts board, a not-for-profit board is more difficult to run than any equivalent business organization. And that was summed up by John Brown, chairman of BP, who said the British Museum is an organization of about 50 million pounds. Fine. He said it is 10 times more difficult to run than a commercial operation of 50 million pounds. So I think um, 
maybe I was very lucky, but uh, boards are very careful to get on to their board of business people who know what they are getting involved in. And it's not a glib, run it like a business. Yeah. But it certainly yeah. is be business-like. And we're always very happy to say, yes, of course. Yeah, don't put a price on art, as the old saying goes. Uh, yes. I know we're running out of time, John, but there's a couple of things I'd just like to quickly capture, if that's okay. First mm. thing is, you talked initially about liking the organisation, but I'd challenge and say it seems to be a little bit more than that, because when you use the words sleepless nights and personal pain, that to me says you have to care for the organisation. And I'm going to throw your words back at you here, hopefully in the nicest way, that in your book you talk about governance being an entirely human activity. And it seems like that's that's the crux of it. It's not so much the process and the structure, it's the human elements that, that are critical. Yes, that, that's absolutely the, the, the case. Um, when people are inducted onto boards or trusteeships, and uh, uh, very often they have a lot of induction in uh, what the Charity Commission says that you must do as a board member. I have yet to come across anybody who has spent time on a board who found that that induction was in any way useful or prepared you for what happened on a board. There is this extraordinary, it is a tension actually, the hard practicality of the numbers, because you are always looking at numbers as well. And then the nature of the people who are running those numbers, who are behind those numbers. That is where the human side comes in. Mm. That is where chair and chief executive have to get on. That is where boards and managers and executives need to get on. They need to understand one another. That is why it is worth being on a board, because it is a human activity. You, you can't, in the end, say, well, management says, management theory says you should do this, that, and the other. It won't help you in all the difficult decisions. I, I was at a board meeting yesterday, and the um, executives who were facing a $400,000 uh, in, in one area of funding then wanted to take a decision which might involve um, losing another three hundred fifty, four hundred thousand. dollars uh, This wasn't stupid. There were perfectly decent reasons for wanting to do it. But the board said, that's far too much of a risk. We won't take it. There wasn't a rift because everybody knew from where everybody was coming. The executive put forward a reasoned case and the board said it is a reasoned case, but the balance between the two is that we think it is too great a risk. That was the human side working together on an absolutely practical matter. Thank you. And final question, and this is going to challenge you a bit in terms of some future gazing but in a world that's had a massive pivot point and changed hugely what is the role going forward for the board is it as steady as she goes or do you think that there should be and can be change that would help well i would want to know and boards will what executives propose uh my guess would be that executives will have at least three stages one is protect where we are. Second is retrench where we are. And the third is how do we innovate from where we are? Because I suspect 
that we won't just wind back and go back to where we were a year ago. Something will have to be different, and that is where I would expect ideas of innovation, maybe sometimes very daring, to come from the executives. That is where the role of the board in looking at the character and nature of the executives and the organization would say, this is how we weigh up the risks of what you are suggesting. I think it will be very demanding for boards because they are going to have to sort out, is there enough retrenchment? Um, and is the right kind of innovation? Well, is it that? And both those processes, the protection and, and the retrenchment will have to be very carefully done and then the innovation, and they will involve terrific judgment on the part of the board, part of the executives as well. But it's a real partnership role. That's the process. Um, and I think life is going to be very, very hard indeed. And there will be sleepless nights. Mm. And that, that's one of the things I, I finished your book thinking that um, I'd like to be on a board. I'm not sure I, I dare. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's clearly it's not a jolly is it it's it's a, a tough gig and you have to care about the organization john it's been, oh sorry if you can get through the stage you know when it works and you've achieved something and and helped the executive to achieve something there is a real sense of satisfaction uh but it involves time it involves commitment but it's worth doing and you accept the uh, down bits. Well, it's much easier to accept them now <laughs> that I've been, I've been through them. <laughs> so you have to take the long view. Brilliant. John, what a lovely point to finish on. Thank you so much for the time. I hope the book is and will be a success. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. Great pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Continue the journey at www.theculturebuilders.com.